You're listening to Media Industry Conversations. I'm your host, Kyle Rather. This speaker series is part of a course in the Department of Radio, Television, and Film at the University of Texas at Austin. Students hear from industry professionals who talk about their experiences, knowledge, and thoughts on the changing media landscape. This week's guest, Hall Hood, had always dreamed of being a filmmaker. He graduated from UT's RTF department in 1992 and then worked for years with an independent producer. But when the opportunity arose to join the video game company BioWare, Hood, who is a lifelong gamer, jumped at the opportunity. Today, he's BioWare's studio lead writer and has developed interactive narratives, characters, and lore for massively multiplayer online role-playing games such as Star Wars The Old Republic and many others. Hood talked about the parallels and differences between gaming and other industries, what it's like to write for an ever-changing medium, and his advice for students looking to work in the industry. He spoke on November 27, 2017, on the UT campus, and the conversation was hosted by Elisa Perrin. Welcome. Uh, First of all, welcome to our next installment of the Media Industry Conversation Speakers Series. I'm Elisa Perrin, and I'm pleased to welcome Mr. Hall Hood. So before we get started, I just want to say some thank yous. Uh, first of all, to the RTF faculty and staff, especially our chair, Tom Schatz, as well as uh, the RTF uh, marketing web coordinator extraordinaire, Alana Wakeman, and my colleague, Cindy McCreary, as well as Dean Bernhardt of the College of Communication. And I also want to thank our grad students, uh, Brett Siegel, Kyle Rather, Britta Hansen, and Annie Major. So thanks all for your assistance. And uh, now a little bit about our guest. First of all, an RTF grad, which is great, uh, and our first representative from the gaming industry this semester. And uh, Mr. Hood uh, is involved in creating interactive narratives, original characters, branching dialogue scenes, and background lore for massive multiplayer online role-playing games. For Bioware, currently, as lead writer, uh, most notably Star Wars The Old Republic, but a ton of other titles as well. And so today, hopefully, we can talk a bit about his career trajectory, uh, his various experiences and recommendations he has about working in Austin in the gaming industry, and recommendations and advice for you if that's a path you're interested in pursuing. Okay, so let's go ahead and dig in. Um, First off the bat, maybe you can just tell us what your career goals were during your time at UT and RTF, what were you thinking you wanted to do and how did those evolve? So my original plan was that I wanted to be a filmmaker. Uh, I was, I was, that was my focus when I was here uh, a million years ago. I graduated in 1992 to give you some reference. Um, back then the film courses, uh, we used the wind up Bell and Howell cameras, uh, film cameras from, that were originally used in World War II. Uh, you could still see little shrapnel chunks taken out of them. Um, so it was a very different world back then. Uh, but it was great. I had a fantastic time here. I learned a lot. Um, and what I, one of the things that, uh, that I discovered as a, as a result of taking these courses uh, you know, and learning here at the university was that I, I actually preferred writing to the actual physical process of making uh, films. Um, I like being able to just sit down and imagine things and then leaving the gory details to someone else to figure out how to make that happen. Um, and so that's what I did for uh, several years uh, out of college. I kind of lucked into a, uh, uh, a position with an independent uh, producer 
who essentially uh, paid me to develop his ideas for him. Um, and uh, so that was great. It was a terrific way to uh, hone my craft and, uh, and, and learn and get better. But I am a lifelong gamer. Um, I've always, I, you know, my original home console was Pong. Um, so, you know, I had that, I had, you know, I, I, I skipped right past Atari 2600 and, and television. I went right to ColecoVision. No one knows what ColecoVision is. Except I know. Um, but, uh, but yeah, but I, so I've always played games. I love Bioware's games in particular because I liked, I'm, I'm a storyteller. I like story-driven games, and that's what Bioware specializes in, are story-driven role-playing games. Um, and so I'd already been playing their games for many years and enjoying them quite thoroughly uh, when a friend of mine here in Austin uh, let me know that Bioware was going to open a studio here in Austin specifically to develop uh, a massively multiplayer online role-playing game that would have Bioware storytelling in it. And of course I immediately, he, he had the contact information for the then uh, lead writer of, that, uh, of the project. Um, I reached out to him and in the span of about five minutes of trading emails, I went from, hey, I like Bioware, I'm a writer, uh, to, we have a test, would you like to take it? Sure, so I was taking the test. Um, and then a couple of months later, I had a job. Um, and I, I have held on to that job greedily ever since. So yeah, when was this, roughly? This would have been back in 2006. Okay. So. And uh, you'd never read about or written games before, it was just purely your experiences as a player. Right, and I had a lot to learn about <laughs> writing for interactive narratives. Yeah, so jumping into the company, you know, how did you uh, learn the skill sets or what was it like launching into this? Well, one of the things that Bioware does is that there is a very, um, you, are, you are basically allowed to spend your first three months as a Bioware writer learning the process, learning how to do, how to tell stories in an interactive branching format. You are permitted to fail. You are permitted to come up with terrible, unworkable ideas. Uh, and then be shown how terrible and unworkable they are and then how to fix them. <laughs> um, so yeah, so that's what you do for your first three months and then you move on to actual um, you know, work that might wind up in the game. Now, what was interesting is that when I joined Bioware Austin back in 2006, um, we were leaning very heavily toward making a Star Wars role-playing game, um, but we didn't have the contract signed yet. Uh, we were still negotiating that in the background. And so we spent a lot of time when I was, I was part of the initial team that got hired up um, to work on this project. We spent a lot of time just figuring out um, what, you know, how we could tell a story. What kinds of stories could we tell? What would this game even potentially look like uh, when we were making it? And uh, before we even had a contract, I think, I, I think the writing team was already developing stories and nailing things down like six months before we had a signed contract with Lucasfilm. Wow. Um, so it was pretty exciting times, because we all sat there going, boy, I sure hope this works. Uh, sure hope we get to make this game. And uh, we had some other uh, backup plans that would have also been pretty exciting. I don't know how many uh, folks here play Bioware games or are fans of Bioware games, but we had, we had alternative plans that included everything from Game of Thrones to uh, <laughs> Dragon Age to a bunch of other uh, potential IPs. So that was exciting. Um, um, yeah, so what the size of Bioware was when mm. you got there, and at, or the division here, right. at least, and how many writers were involved? So I was among the first uh, probably 25 people uh, hired to work in the studio back in 2006. Uh, back then, there were only four writers, including the lead, um, and then we had, uh, obviously, we had artists and programmers and, uh, you know, various business folks and things like that. 
uh, working on everything. Um, and, uh, but eventually, over time, by the time we released the game in 2012, I think there were probably about 400 of us total Wow! Uh, throughout every department and division uh, working on the game. And that included people in remote locations around the world. Um, but, uh, and then the writing team itself, it, it remains, it still holds the record for the largest writing team um, in video game history. I, there's never been a team uh, bigger than that as far as I know. Uh, the writing pit that we sat in together, uh, there were 10 of us. Um, in, that, in that room. And then that doesn't include some of the people up in Bioware's original location in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, uh, that, you know, who also helped us out. Um, and then we also hired some uh, remote freelancers to uh, develop quests for us as well. It was an enormous team. It was just gigantic. And you were all just working on, this was the Old Republic, right? That's right. Just the one game. And how many were actually based here versus dispersed? Well, virtually everyone, everyone on the main writing team was here in Austin. Okay. And we all worked together. We all had one big office, big open office where we worked together. And we would shout ideas at each other. And we would say, what's the name of that guy in your plot? The blah, blah, blah. It's like, oh, that guy. Oh, yeah. I'm going to kill him over in my plot. No, you can't do that. You know, that sort of thing. So um, it was fun. It was a good, it was a great experience. And it was, it was fun being able to work with these people. And, and in, in fact, I think we actually hired another uh, yes, actually, one of my colleagues is a, is a fellow UT graduate, not from the RTF program. Uh, I think he took Russian studies or something like that. But anyway, and uh, yeah. So how many of the people that are working for BioWare gain the skills that they had in college versus writing and beyond writing versus learned on the job or got other forms of training? There's always going to be a lot that you learn on the job. But the truth of the matter is, I would never have uh, attained the position that I did and been able to stay uh, in the position and ascend to the level that I had without the training that I had beforehand, without the years of experience uh, that I put in, and without getting my start here. You know, I took my first screenwriting classes here. That's, this is where I discovered that I enjoyed screenwriting, and I learned some of the basic principles of, uh, of what I was doing, and then continued to practice it professionally. So maybe you can talk a little bit about how writing for games is similar to or different from writing for film or television, since you've had experiences across these. Right, so it's the thing about writing for games, and in particular for Bioware games, I should specify, it's incredibly different from writing for any other type of medium. And in fact, we have discovered that we have a, a difficult time sometimes training up new writers who come to us from more traditional established media, because you have to think in terms of branching interactive narratives. You have to think in terms of player choice, player agency, the number one thing about any role-playing game, any kind of branching narrative, is that the player controls the story, not you. You get to show them certain things, but you have to give them choices about what they're going to do and how they're going to do it. And so for those of you who are not familiar with, with Bioware-style role-playing games, you know, it's the sort of thing where you walk up to an NPC in the world, you click on them, and they're like, hi, I've got a quest for you. Would you like a quest? You're like, why, well, yes, I would like a quest. <laughs> uh, or, you know, you might say, well, what's in it for me? Or something like that. You can take, you know, adopt different characterization modes as you're interacting with this NPC. And then they'll respond. They'll react according to what you told them. Um, and then the, they will continue to present their problem to you. Um, and then... At the end, you will decide how you're going to go about fulfilling whatever this need is that they have, whatever their, whatever their problem is that they're trying to solve, and you're the person who's going to solve it, uh, is, you know, is entirely up to the player. And the player can potentially 
do entirely different gameplay depending on how they want to solve uh, this character's problem in the game world. And part of Bioware is that Bioware likes to have, you know, in their stories, they like to have a big twist. So as a consequence of going on this, um, you know, adventure and trying to help out this character in the world, frequently they will, you know, you will discover something exciting that you were not expecting, you know, the, the, weird, the weird little twist, or actually the person I'm working for is totes evil and I've got to, you know, <laughs> do something about this uh, kind of thing. Um, and, you know, that, and then for the end of the quest, when the player comes back to them, they decide, how's this story going to end? Um, do you actually continue to work with this person who's evil or do you call them out or do you actually challenge them to a duel and defeat them in combat, that kind of thing. Um, yeah, so, and that's, you have to be able to hold all those different versions of the story in your head at the same time, and they all have to make sense. They all have to line up uh, so that the player feels like no matter how they get to the end, it made sense every step of the way. That, that, that the unfolding narrative adhered to traditional narrative logic, um, you know, that, that there's actual character arcs and character development. Um, yeah, so, and then, so it's, it's, uh, but it's a lot of fun. And that's what, that's what I discovered was that I really enjoy telling these kinds of stories almost more than anything else. Just because I'm one of those people that can never be satisfied with one version of a story anyway. So if I get to write all the versions of the story, well, that's great. Well, I'm curious, you said there's a, there's a writing team, right? So I'm, what is the hierarchy like there? How are the division, how's the labor divided up? Sure. Um, so we had a, we had a, a lead writer, uh, you know, at the beginning. I took over as lead writer later on. Um, we had a lead writer. Below the lead writer, we had a couple of sub-leads. I wound up being credited on the base game as one of the sub-leads. Um, I was mostly associated with um, so the, we have two factions in the game. There's Republican Empire. Um, I was mostly associated with the good guys, although I actually did a lot of work for the bad guys uh, as well. So I got to enjoy uh, both sides of the aisle, as it were. Um, and, uh, and then we had, um, you know, there were, you know, in terms of the other hierarchies, we had traditional writers, uh, you know, in terms of, of titles, it's just there's writer. We also had entry-level writers, people who were training up who would be associate writers. Um, they would tend to get maybe the, you know, sort of trainee tasks, things like um, writing quest journal entries. You know, so like when you have a quest in a story-driven game and you haven't played the game for three weeks and you're like, what was I even doing? You know, you have a quest journal that you can open up and it gives you a little summary of what's the, the story so far and you're able to pick it up where you left off. So they would write things like that. They would write things like codex entries. The codex is, um, you know, revealing background information about characters in the world and, and uh, you know, and, and planets that you're visiting and just... It's trivia more than anything else, but Bioware fans really enjoy that kind of thing. They like to get fully immersed in these worlds. Um, so that would be something that associate writers would do. And then the, the higher level writers, you know, and then the senior writers uh, would traditionally take on a significant chunk of uh, content. So, uh, you know, I wound up, you know, in, in the course of my duties, I took on the entire class plot for the Jedi Knight class. We had, we had eight classes in the game. We had four Republic and four Empire. So we had two different Jedi classes. We had the Smuggler, we had the Trooper on the Republic side. And then we had two Sith classes, um, the Imperial Agent and uh, the Bounty Hunter, the Boba Fett character on the Imperial side. And uh, they were all fun to work on. I actually wound up contributing to almost all of them, I think, in some, even, even just in small ways. Um, but you almost, you know, you can't help it when you're in a, in a pit with a bunch of other writers and bouncing ideas off each other. Um, 
but I got to work on the Jedi Knight, uh, the Smuggler, which was, you know, sort of my, you know, that I always liked Han Solo best. So, you know, getting to write a, a Smuggler story for the game was a lot of fun. Um, and then I wrote a lot of uh, group-based content. So we had the class stories were designed to be soloable content, right? This was just your personal Bioware-style story uh, where your choices mattered more than anything else. Um, and you felt very, a very personal connection to it. And the innovation that we had at the time was that we had multiplayer storytelling. So you would group up with your friends and all, you know, potentially all four of you would walk up to the NPC and click on them to start that conversation that I described to you before. But when a choice would come up, you and your friends would compete to drive the conversation. So everybody would click on what they wanted to say and then we had an algorithm working in the background to determine which player won at the, uh, to, to the right to say something, and then they would say whatever, um, which gets really interesting when you start being involved in things like um, you know, making moral choices about do we kill this guy or let him go, you know, and you get these, these sharp divides between uh, uh, the players, but somebody has to win that, uh, that role. So um, that, was, that was one of our big innovations that, uh, that we tried to have with the, uh, with the game was introducing that. Cool. So I'm curious, in, in our class we've talked a bit about showrunners as a sort of like lead producing managerial creative figure. Is there a similar sort of role at the top of the chain that's managing or what is the title of that? How does that work? So different studios have a lot of different positions for this sort of thing. Frequently in the games industry, anybody who's at the very top of the chain is the creative director for the project. Um, and they're kind of responsible for holding the overall vision. So they're handling everything, not just story, but they're looking at art. They're looking at gameplay design decisions. They're looking at how long does it take to fight this boss? Uh, you know, it's like, what, you know, what, what is the moment-to-moment -moment player experience like? Um, so that's, that's what they do. Um, then we also, you can have narrative directors. Narrative directors are um, sort of just below, they report to creative directors, but they're overseeing not just writing, but the overall presentation of the narrative within the game. So the idea of they will also work with the artists for things like visual storytelling. What does this environment look like and why does it look like that? What kind of characters inhabit this environment and why do they inhabit it and what are they doing? Uh, so they, you touch on everything from animation to audio uh, to things like that. And then you, know, you, you continue down the ladder to just you know, to writers and editors. Um, one of the things that uh, Bioware particularly invests in, we like to have editors uh, on our staff all the time, evaluating all the uh, content for us, ensuring that we maintain a consistent tone and style and character voice, um, and, and you know, calling it out when we, we veer off course. We also have narrative QA. Um, you know, so making video games is a lot more like software development than it is like making a movie. Um, you go to an office. Uh, you sit in a big, you know, open desk seating plan with a lot of people from various departments. Um, and, uh, you know, we, when you're working together, you, you know, you have QA. You know, it's, it, when you're making software, you have QA. Is this bugged? Does this work? Um, and we do that. We, we provide that same treatment for our narratives as well. You know, they'll, they'll evaluate it from the sense of, well, as a player, I kind of thought this was going to happen, but you gave me, I wanted vanilla and you gave me chocolate. Why? You know, sort of thing. And then it's our job as writers to kind of justify uh, why we did that, or if we can't, to actually make some changes um, to ensure that we're providing the, the best class uh, player experience. 
So I'm curious, are, are you engaging much or were you engaging much with Lucasfilm or what was their role or relationship throughout this process? Oh, sure. I mean, you know, look at, now when we started this game, it's important to remember, this is before the Disney deal. So this is when George Lucas was still in charge of everything. And uh, one of the, you know, pe people have a lot of opinions about George Lucas, but I will say this for the man, he was great about sharing his IP and he was great about letting people contribute to it um, and, and add whatever ideas that they wanted to, to, to build out that world. Um, I got to do things in Star Wars The Old Republic that I never imagined. Uh, at one point, Bioware is also famous for creating what we call companion characters. These are you know, non-player characters that you meet in the game, you become friends with them, and then they follow you around and they help you out on adventures. And we write a variety, some of them you can have romances with, so we have a whole dating simulation aspect to this. Um, <laughs> So, but the, I got to write a character, they, they just decided on a, they decided that we needed more, because our game is set in the old, it's set 3,000 years before the time of the movies. So it's a very different galaxy, although very similar in so many ways. But they wanted more touchstones for the original trilogy, and so the decision was made, um, hey, put a, we're gonna put an Ewok in the game. And uh, as a companion, you're gonna, uh, we want you to write it. And I just, my head just kind of went And you know, it's like, well, that doesn't even make sense. And so I had to come up with a whole rationalization for how an Ewok ever made it to the galaxy 3,000 years before Return of the Jedi. Um, but I also decided to have some fun with it. Uh, and I, managed, I got away with some stuff that I never thought I'd get away with, like leaning into the whole cannibalism thing. Because I don't know if you've watched Return of the Jedi, but they were totally going to barbecue Han. And uh, so, uh, so I have, there's a whole conversation where once you hit a certain affection threshold with this character, the, the Ewok sort of leans in and he goes, we don't have seafood on my world. How do, you, how do you prepare the fish guys when you kill them? You know, sort of thing. And the player could just be like, I'm, what? You know, sort of thing. Or he can be like, well, I use salt. And, uh, you know, sort of thing. And so, and that just sailed right through. Nobody batted an eyelash. And I just thought, that's great. Um, now, that said, um, you know, there, are, there were some, some restrictions. Uh, you know, Lucas had certain things that he was very protective of, uh, specifically Yoda and the planet Dagobah, and especially the tree that Luke climbed into and had his vision um, of Darth Vader. And we were not allowed to explain those, name them, or uh, really sort of, we were sort of discouraged from touching on them. And in fact, if you ever look at any ancillary materials uh, for Star Wars, any of the encyclopedias or, or guides or things like that, Yoda's species is never named. It is in fact simply referred to as the unidentified tridactyl species. So, um, and so that's, that's it. And there's, there, that's all you're ever gonna learn uh, about, uh, about the Yoda type characters. Um, so that so that's interesting, but I mean I'll take it. You know that's I mean that's not terribly draconian. It's like this one little area that's cordoned off. Everything else we could kind of do whatever we wanted. So are there people coming in from Lucasfilm and checking in, or do you just have to go back and forth with them? We regularly? actually the, the way that it would work is as we were generating content, we and and this would start this would be I'll, I'll walk you a little bit through the steps of how something gets made in the game. That'd be great. So essentially like. You know, with story, it starts with the writers. We'll sit around, we'll brainstorm. This is what we want to do. This is what we think will be exciting. And we'll put together uh, kind of an initial pitch, uh, which is usually just like a one paragraph. It's almost an elevator pitch. Uh, it's not quite a log line like a screenplay. It's a little more fleshed out than that. Um, and then once we get approval from the higher ups 
to move forward with it if they don't see anything terribly, terribly wrong with it. Um, then we will go ahead and flesh that out into a full design document. And we describe the entirety of the story, the characters. Uh, you know, we describe what choices players get to make in the game um, and how the story will branch based on those choices. That document will go to Lucasfilm to be evaluated. So they will get input at that early stage before we even write a line of dialogue. Um, and so they will look at that. Um, they will, uh, then once we start, we, you know, once we have approval on the overall design, we go into the proprietary tool set where we write all of our branching dialogue. We start writing dialogue. And uh, we put that together. Eventually, once the dialogue has been through editing and narrative QA and has sign off, that will also go uh, to, to the, uh, the IP holder for evaluation. And they'll call out anything that they think is problematic. They almost never do. Uh, one, of the, one of the secrets of how we got away with some things in this game is that we made so much content. I think we actually have a Guinness World Record for the amount of content. I, I, I'm serious. I think we actually have that. Um, and so we, um, I think we just overwhelmed them. And they just, <laughs> they just kind of like, oh, God, I guess just do it. Just go. And you know, as, long as, it was, as, you know, as long as it wasn't too crazy. Um, but then they would, they would continue to, to circle back. And so they would see things once it was implemented in the game. They would evaluate the cinematics. So there's a whole a, um, discipline within games where you know, when you're having those, those cutscene moments, somebody had to hand animate that. Or what's happening more and more now is uh, somebody goes and does performance capture. They'll have actors in a green screen studio and they'll act out the scene and, and show you know, what, uh, um, uh, you know, what, what's, what's going on and, and, uh, and then that'll just get imported straight into the game. Um, so they will evaluate that. Um, and they'll, they'll kind of look at it at every step of the way to make sure that everything's being implemented perfectly. Um, and I think that uh, um, you know, our relationship under, you know, since Disney took over, it's been mostly the same, quite honestly. Like Disney is uh, the one place where I will say that they take much more notice of what we're doing is when we are doing promotional materials. That's what they really care about. They will let you get away with almost anything you want uh, in the game itself, but when it comes to things that are going to be out there, like big YouTube videos promoting your game and things like that, that's where they become very protective of the brand. That's where they put extra scrutiny on everything that you're doing. Um, and, and that's where there will be a great deal more back and forth uh, that goes on with that. Star Wars The Old Republic, we had uh, some really wonderful um, trailers that were produced by uh, the company Blur that makes some, all the amazing, all the most amazing CGI trailers that you see for video games. They're almost always made by Blur. Um, the director of several of our, uh, um, our, our promotional videos for Star Wars The Old Republic uh, went on to direct Deadpool, uh, that movie. And uh, so yeah, so it's, um, um, that's exciting stuff. And, and I actually, now that I think about it, I had an opportunity to write some of those uh, as well. Some of the dialogue in, some, in a few of the uh, promotional videos was, was mine. Yeah. So how long were you working on The Old Republic from when you first started to when it <clears throat> was released? So I joined the team very early on in uh, May of 2006, and we released the game uh, in December of 2011. So it was a while. 
Uh, it was it was five long years. We produced a whole lot of content during that time. And you were writing this whole time. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I was I was always busy. Uh, we always, we, you know, and because and especially as you get toward the end of the development process, there's that that acceleration where you start noticing all the places like, oh, we don't have much content over here. We need to we need to add more. It's time to put more stuff in here. Um, and so that, that's where you start very quickly turning out content. Uh, to get it into the uh, into the game. So yeah, I was writing right up until uh, the end. And and then the truth is, we went from writing uh, the base game, we handed all that off to the many, many, many other people who were going to implement that, and we started writing the expansions before the base game had even launched. Uh, because we have to, writing has to get out so far ahead of the other departments. They need to be able to see the blueprint of what they're building uh, and it needs to be, you know, pretty, pretty clearly in place ahead so, of time. So, how much are you interfacing with other departments, or and what other departments would you be engaging with regularly? The most common departments that you engage with are level design, the people who are responsible for building the levels that the players are going to adventure through, and placing the enemies, and figuring out whatever the gameplay things are, the special puzzles that you're going to need to solve, and things like that. Uh, we work with them a lot, and then obviously cinematics. Um, is uh, incredibly critical. You know, we evaluate how the scenes that we've written are playing out uh, in the game and making sure that they, you know, conform to the vision that we had for this and don't do anything weird with the characters and things like that. And then the audio team as well. So, um, you know, we'll, we'll have, you know, table reads. We'll sit down together, we'll play act all the dialogue to make sure nothing is just catastrophically awful and impossible <laughs> to say. And, um, and then, but, and sometimes, uh, it was harder to do on uh, Star Wars Old Republic because everything was being recorded in L.A. Um, but very frequently, we would listen in on uh, recording sessions, and we would be able to give, you know, clarify things for the actors. We don't really give them notes. We don't try to tell people, you know, how to do their jobs. But if they're like, what, is this, what do you mean here, <laughs> you know, sort of thing, it's great to have the writer right there to say, oh, it's referring to this totally different story, but trust me, it all works, you know. Um, and yeah, so that's, uh, yeah, so quite, quite a number of people. Yeah. Um, and then the marketing team as well. The marketing team would frequently uh, come to us and say, we want to give us your cool new stuff so that we can promote it. And we go, well, how about if we gave you like a little sliver of our cool stuff so we don't spoil our story? Um, and, uh, you know, but it was, it's always fun. It's always fun to get that, uh, be involved in that process. So I'm curious how the testing process works like. How, you know, are you testing with players, or how? You know, who's involved when to make sure beyond you all internally that this is working? How does that go? Well, so one of it is we usually almost every game studio maintains uh, a group of QA testers, beta testers, uh, someplace else in the world that not in the studio. There will be people who test things in the studio, but what you want are people who have not been around for all the conversations. They don't understand how the content got the way that it did. Um, and so they're just coming in cold to look at what you've done and evaluate it fairly uh, with a dispassionate eye. And so we frequently have, you know, uh, Madrid, Spain is a famous place for, for QA. We also have a lot in Bulgaria, um, a lot of, lot of uh, QA teams uh, out there. So they'll play test things. Like I said, we do have narrative, internal narrative QA. We'll also have external narrative QA. Like so frequently we'll, we'll uh, send things out for evaluation and we'll, we'll have, uh, um, you know, uh, and that, that's just traditional marketing stuff. It's almost like it's almost like screenings for movies, where you'll present it, um, and then you'll give them a little questionnaire. What do you think? You know, sort of thing, and then you'll collect all those responses and 
and uh, hear what they have to say. So QA is sort of the blanket label for all the types of testing that you're doing, right. both internally and externally. That's correct. And so there are a lot, and there are many different types of quality assurance people. Um, you know, some of them are only evaluating combat, and they will just give you notes like it took too long to kill this boss, or it was way too easy to kill this boss. Um, you know, there will be people who are evaluating level flow and level design, and they'll say, I got lost. You know, I couldn't figure out where my objective was, and I wandered around for 20 minutes. Um, you know, things like that. And then we will have people that are evaluating things. They'll bug things like, hey, the subtitle comes up as this, but the actor actually delivers this totally different line uh, when that comes up, and we have to figure out why the mismatch happens and, and fix that. And they're just continuing the whole time, iterating and giving you notes. And how many people is this, roughly? I really couldn't say. I know that for us, uh, especially in the run-up to the game's release, it was a small army. Um, so it was, it was, it's quite a number of people. I would say, you know, uh, easily, you know, 50 people probably evaluating this. Wow. <laughs> so I want to backtrack a little bit because you clearly are a, a fan yourself of the Star Wars material, and I'm, I'm interested to know, you know, is there a Bible or a set of documents, or how are you all understanding and knowing what you can do and how you can do it and all of that sort of thing? Well, what was interesting on this project was that the writing team was a mix of people who were incredibly passionate about Star Wars, who had seen the movies, and that was about it. And then we had a couple of people who had great antipathy for the uh, uh, source material. And, uh, but they, everybody stepped up and did good work, uh, regardless of their background or how they, uh, you know, how they embraced uh, uh, Star Wars. And in terms of um, you know, sort of what our touchstones were, we watched the original trilogy. We watched the prequels. We favored the original trilogy. Um, you know, we would try and keep up with some of the comics and novels. A lot of us had read the, you know, this was at a time when, you know, there were quite a number of Star Wars tie-in novels and things like that being published on a regular basis. Um, but honestly, one of our biggest resources uh, was an online database called Wikipedia. Uh, and Wikipedia was a fan-run Star Wars database of information that was so impossibly thorough um, and we, we took a lot of information, you know, we, whenever we needed to fact check something, we would just go there because the fans knew the material better than we did and we could just quickly check on things to find out. Now, what's interesting is that we discovered later on, after the game had come out, when we started reading articles about our game and the story in our game, we, we found some discrepancies. So we discovered some place where we're like, that's not actually what I said in that story, sort of thing. This is, this is some fan you know, injecting their ideas about what really happened in the story, but that the text does not support. Um, so that's the danger of using uh, something like that. But then ultimately, what we wound up doing, uh, uh, me and uh, so, uh, four or five other of, uh, uh, writers on the team, we got together and we wrote um, an encyclopedia for the game that was published by Dorland Kindersley Books. Um, and I think you can still buy it. Um, it's, it's the official encyclopedia of the Star Wars The Old Republic. And uh, there's tons and tons of articles in there. What's especially fun about that is that we would see, they would send us the proof pages and they would show us the art layout. And there would be all these, if you've ever seen like the visual dictionary books, like the Dorling Kindersley visual dictionaries, <laughs> there's all these lines where there's just blank space, insert text here, and then there's this line that goes to this thing on this illustration. And they love drawing that line to like some random piece of equipment or some thing that's just jutting out from the side of a vehicle or a spaceship and what's that? And 
I had a lot of fun just making stuff up. It's, just, it's like, oh, I think that's a blah, 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 flabberty, 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 you know, sort of thing. It's like, and then it's like, well, are they going to check my spelling? No, because I made it up. So, uh, yeah, so that was, that was a good time. So we've talked a lot about the Old Republic. I'm curious, because I know you've worked on a lot of other games. How distinctive was that experience? Or uh, maybe you can talk briefly about one of the other games you've worked on and any differences in the process. Sure. So in the years since uh, Star Wars Old Republic's come out, I've also worked on some of the other Bioware IPs, Dragon Age, Mass Effect. Uh, right now I'm working on Anthem, uh, for anybody who knows what that is. Um, and uh, the... Uh, you know, it's, it's a different process. One of the things that's interesting is that um, Bioware owns the IPs, Dragon Age and Mass Effect. They control it. Um, and so we don't have that added layer of submitting things to other people to review. We don't, um, I mean, we do. It's just that we're submitting it to people in the company, you know, who are sort of the, the keepers of the IP and who have very passionate opinions about what uh, can and can't happen in it. Um, so yeah, so that's uh, it's a different it's a different process. Um, it's just as easy uh, to trip over continuity errors um, and and get get things confused. And so we also have plenty of people on staff who are ready to pounce on those things and and uh, you know smooth out any uh, issues that we introduce with the, the lore, the continuity. Lore is a very big thing on games like Dragon Age uh, in particular. It's very it's fantasy. It's very sort of Tolkien meets George R. R. Martin, and there's a lot of, it's very specific. Um, there's a lot of things going on in that lore. There's a whole invented history that goes along with it. Um, and so, yes, I, I continually, I'm, I am, I'm one of those writers where I just kind of go, woo, let's do something crazy, you know, sort of thing. And it's like, what if, uh, sort of thing. And, and then there was a lot of like, no, you can't do that, you know, sort of thing. It's like, well, what if we did this other thing? It's like, yeah, that's fine, just go ahead. Um, yeah, so that's uh, it's a, it's a different experience, but you're you know you're collaborating more internally, um, but there's still there's still plenty of restrictions on it. And at the end of the day, you are always thinking about the players and the fans. Uh, in particular, IPs like Dragon Age and Mass Effect, um, people dress up as those characters, right? Like they go to conventions and comic conventions and things like that. They dress up as those characters. They take it that seriously. They care very passionately about these things. And so you have to be very careful how you handle um, the IP. Um, I've, and I've learned this repeatedly. It's, I mean, it's, it's true of the Bioware, but it's also true of, of Star Wars. For a while, I was on Twitter, and I finally left. But it was fun for a while. But I noticed that I had a really hard time kidding around. And I would, I would have people approach me with these very serious questions about who would win in a fight, this character or this character. And I would be like, well, this character would obviously win because of the bunnies, you know, sort of thing. And people would just be, they would get very angry with me about this sort of thing. And so I, I quickly learned that I had to kind of dial it down a little bit and, and uh, take, it, take it a lot more seriously, recognize that for them this is something that they're extremely passionate about. So I'm curious, Bioware is owned by Electronic Arts, correct? That's right. So how much are you engaging with the sort of larger corporate owners, or how are they involved? How is that relationship? So obviously, you know, Electronic Arts is a, is a publisher, right? Mm -hmm. they, they publish, they own studios, they publish their games. Um, you know, they have a lot of, you know, they, they're like any other major, it's, it, it's like Disney, right? You know, there's, there's a, a holding company that's in charge of all of this. They're going to look at, Everything that you're doing, they're going to evaluate it. They're going to have ideas. They're going to have opinions about it. They are also looking at the broader market forces that are at work. 
So they're evaluating things in terms of this particular type of style of game is going out of fashion, and we need to start adjusting and going over to this other style of game. Um, or, um, hey, that's really exciting, this thing that you did here. We'd sure like to introduce that in these other games that we're working on, uh, these other titles. And so uh, one of the things that I got to do last year that was a lot of fun was uh, working on, I was a story consultant on uh, the most recent Madden uh, NFL game that introduced a, a story mode. So it has like this sort of branching narrative. See somebody nodding, he's like, yeah, I played that. So it's, uh, you know, the story in there is, is uh, um, you know, it, it was, you know, the, the people that were working on it brought us their script, they showed us what they were working on, um, and myself and a couple of my colleagues sat down and we just sort of went through the script, you know, as a group and we sort of evaluated them, we looked at what was happening with the story, what they were doing with choice and consequence in the game and player agency in the narrative, and uh, we gave them some, some feedback and, and uh, it was a lot of fun. Uh, and it was great to see other, and, and in particular, you know, Madden, would probably be the last thing that you would expect to see adopting story mode uh, in their games or trying to do something very similar to what Bioware does. But they did it and it was, it was fun. So that, there, you, get that, you get into that kind of synergy across uh, different studios and different projects. Yeah, so speaking of them monitoring market trends, market forces, I'm curious if we can back up a little bit and just get your perspective a little bit more in terms of what changes have you noticed in the video game industry since <laughs> you entered? And, uh, what do you think are, among the more significant ones? Well, I think one of the big ones was uh, when we started working on Star Wars Old Republic, um, it was a lot easier to make money in uh, MMOs. <laughs> so uh, when the game came out, uh, we, we struggled a bit and um, we eventually had to, we came out with a subscription model that was very similar to what World of Warcraft still has. Uh, World of Warcraft is just, you know, never gonna be dethroned. They are, they are the king of, uh, of MMOs, they got their, not quite first, but they got their best and they've held on to their audience ever since. Um, we eventually had to adopt a free-to-play model. And so we had, to, we had to, which was something that we were already seeing in mobile gaming and in some other MMOs that had come out just prior to ours that had struggled a bit when they came out, including things like Lord of the Rings and Star Trek Online and things like that. Um, they were going to a free-to-play model with a cash shop in the game where you could buy special mounts for your character to hop on and ride around in the world in, or you know, special unique costumes and, and appearances you know, to customize the characters uh, in the game. And so that's, that's what we wound up doing. And then we also had expansions that were paid expansions, where if you wanted to access that content, you needed to spend 20 bucks or something like that in order to unlock it in the game. Um, and so that was something that we've seen is that um, MMOs have definitely gone the way of most of them are free to play with cash shops. And of course now we're seeing the next evolution of that. I read a great article today that was, or uh, yesterday that was talking about um, very soon we're all going to be playing MMOs, we're just not going to call them that. Um, and so that was uh, one of the things that was, uh, that's been interesting is that you see games like Destiny uh, or The Division uh, that are coming out and they are persistent online worlds where you hop in, you play with, there's always a certain, you know, you, when you hop into the game, servers populate your game with a certain number of players, other players, but not so many that it just overwhelms your game experience. They're trying to find just that right balance. But it's social, you play together, you group up, uh, you can also invite your, your personal friends into your game uh, to, uh, to have fun with that. Um, and, but it doesn't have quite the same scope and breadth as something like World of Warcraft or something like the traditional MMOs. 
You know, they, these would have deep crafting systems where you would gather tons of resources and you would make special sets of armor that you could only make by doing this. Um, they don't quite do that. You know, it's more loot boxes and, and uh, you know, going on adventures and getting specific rewards and leveling up that way. And it's still very progression-based. It's still kind of an RPG in the sense that even if there's not story, you have a character that you are continuing to advance and develop and grow and make better at, uh, at what they do. So... That, that's very interesting, and you mentioned that you read this article, which leads me to say, you know, what do you read? How do you keep up with information? If people are interested in working in the gaming industry, what should they be following? Well, the one I, I kind of follow religiously now is a website called gamesindustry.biz, B-I-Z, and, uh, and it's a terrific place for very thoughtful pieces about the business side of making games. But, and they, they dovetail into the craft uh, as well, and they talk about how business is impacting the craft of making games and how things are changing. Uh, there's a particular essayist uh, on there uh, who contributes periodically named Brie Code. Uh, Brie spelled like the cheese, code like what you program. And um, she's spectacular. I think she's one of the foremost thinkers uh, in the industry right now. I think she's way ahead of the curve and has some really brilliant ideas. Um, her very, well, not her very first, but her most provocatively titled essay is Video Games Are Boring. Um, and it's, it's really good, it's, highly, it's definitely worth a read. Um, and she's sort of advocating for a broader definition of what constitutes a game and what constitutes these kinds of experience, these online experiences. Um, I think it's really terrific. Uh, beyond that, I read Polygon. Uh, Polygon.com is a great website for just general gaming news. Uh, Kotaku, uh, which is part of the Kinja uh, conglomerate, um, I think that's also, Kotaku's a terrific, turned into a really terrific uh, site. It used to be skewing much more toward the sort of, uh, uh, tended to be a little more immature, but I think in recent years it's gotten really terrific. Uh, they have some, some great uh, contributors there, and they do some t fantastic investigative journalism about the games industry, so I, I recommend that. Gama Sutra, of course, has been around forever. That's one of the... Um, the, the granddaddy uh, website, that's a great place to, uh, to go for information. Um, if you're looking for a print publication that also has a website, uh, Game, Game Informer uh, magazine is, is uh, it's about as close as you can get to something like you know, Variety or The Hollywood Reporter uh, for the games industry. Cool, that's very helpful. So um, I'm curious uh, what kinds of names in terms of companies, people, events, you would recommend students learn about, know if they're interested in working in games. Who's hiring? <laughs> right. Who's hiring? Well, the good news is everybody's hiring all the time. Um, so there's, there's, there are always tons of jobs out there. The bad news is there's a tremendous amount of uh, competition for those jobs. And so you need to be very good, and you need to, to work hard to, uh, to hone your craft. And you need to know your stuff. You need to play a lot of games. You need to play more games than just the ones you're comfortable with. Uh, I think that's in critically important. Um, and, uh, but, you know, I mean, you've got the big ones, right? You've got Electronic Arts, which has many sub-studios uh, to look at. There's Activision, which, you know, is most famous for having Blizzard uh, as part of its, uh, its holdings. Um, and, uh, but then, there, you know, there's Ubisoft, which is based, uh, you know, international, really. I mean, their North American uh, headquarters, I believe, is in Montreal, uh, Canada. And uh, that's where they produce quite a number of, uh, of games, like Assassin's Creed and, and um, oh shoot, I'm going to blank on all the other ones. But anyway, uh, Just Dance, so, <laughs> which my daughter makes me play so <laughs> with her. But uh, um, 
yeah, that's the story. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, the, uh, yeah, so I mean, I think, I think those are good. There's also, there's a ton of smaller independent developers, and in particular in mobile games. Um, I think one of the biggest challenges right now with um, working with, you know, finding jobs is that a lot of them are located on the coasts. So you're gonna see a lot of them that are in Seattle, Vancouver, um, San Francisco. These are all hideously expensive places to live. Um, and so it's very hard to, uh, um, to get jobs that are going to pay you, and especially when you're just starting out, they're gonna pay enough uh, for you to actually live in those places. So frequently what you will see is a lot of entry level um, you know, game developers banding together and you know, sharing apartments and things like that in these, in these markets because it's just very difficult uh, otherwise. Uh, to be there. Um, but, uh, you know, in terms of uh, uh, major events to go to, I would highly recommend uh, GDC, uh, which happens out in California every year, uh, the Game Developer Conference. Um, that's a really good one to go to. I would also recommend, the thing is, the games industry is huge, and it just keeps getting bigger. There's a whole other industry that we're not even talking about, because I come from the entertainment side of it, called serious games. Well, serious games are about teaching people things. You know, it's, it's about education. Um, you know, some of it is corporate training. Some of it is military and law enforcement training. Um, you know, things, and, and also things about, you know, uh, predicting, uh, you know, politics and, and things like that. They have a, uh, um, a games conference in New York. Uh, and the name of it is escaping me. I'm gonna have to look it up and send it to you so you can tell them. But that's another avenue uh, of approach. You know, if you're if you're less interested, if you want to do, if you want to be involved in something where you feel like you're possibly making the world a better place, uh, serious games is a great way to go. And there's some terrific things. I'm actually playing a game on my phone right now. That's uh, it's called Bury Me, My Love. So it's a real happy story. Um, and uh, it's, it is a game uh, where you play the husband of a woman who is fleeing Syria. And you are attempting to guide her from Syria to safety somewhere in Western Europe. And the interface for the game is like your chat program on your phone. And so you're having conversations with her in a, in a chat window. Um, and then there are, in almost like a traditional Bioware-style game, you will make choices. And, and she will say, oh my God, the, you know, like the taxi driver's trying to charge me triple what we agreed on to drive me over the border. And then there's this other guy down the street, he looks a little sketchy, but he's, you know, he's gonna charge half and you sort of have to navigate, negotiate that. Um, what's brilliant about the game is that in traditional mobile game fashion, um, there will be pauses. You'll play a little bit and then she'll, she'll go offline. She'll say, okay, I gotta go take care of this. I'll, I'll be in touch. And if you leave the game on that particular setting, uh, there, there, you, can, you can tell the game, just give me the whole story. Or you can tell the game, play it in real time. And if you play it in real time, you might wait 15 minutes to hear from her again. Or if things have gone really wrong, you might wait 24 hours before the game alerts you that there's something new to do. Um, and, uh, but it, what's amazing about it is that it is both entertaining, uh, very emotionally engaging, uh, but it is also educational because when my fake wife on my phone tells me that she is now stuck in Bulgaria and has been beaten by the police and they forced her to, to accept asylum from them and we're trying to decide whether or not she needs to sneak out of Bulgaria and continue on her way to Germany or some other uh, you know, more favorable place. I, had to, I, I, I looked at this and I just thought, I'm not qualified to answer this question. <laughs> so 
you know, I actually had to go online and be like, Syrian refugees in Bulgaria. And I started reading articles. I went, oh my God. And then I went back to the game. I was like, no, you have to get out of Bulgaria right now. <laughs> so, um, so that's, and that's kind of amazing, right? I mean, that's, that's a fairly incredible experience to have from a game. Wow. That is not what you would think of no. normally. No. Um, but that's helpful to know. Um, so just to connect back to a point you made earlier about one of the challenges facing professionals is that most of the places where game companies are located are very expensive, coastal cities. What do you see as other major challenges facing uh, industry professionals these days? Well, the big one, of course, is um, you know that the games industry used to have more money. <laughs> um, you know, there have been some controversies recently about things like loot boxes and about monetizing players after they've paid full price for a game and, you know, continuing to ask them to step up and pay more money. Um, and, you know, I have the benefit of being able to see both sides of the issue. Uh, I see it from the consumer gamer perspective of, no, I, I gave you $60. What else do you want from me? Sort of thing. I was like, I just want to play this game. Um, but at the same time, as a game developer, I see the fact that games cost more than they ever have to produce. And the base, the base price for a game has actually fallen, relatively speaking. Like, I remember I worked, in a, I worked in a toy store in the 80s selling Nintendo cartridges. And Nintendo cartridges were $40 back then. Well, if you were going to buy those same cartridges in today's currency, they'd be $75 a pop. Um, but we don't charge that, right? We sort of max out at $60. We save that $75 or $90 tier for like the Uber Deluxe Special Edition. It comes with a statue and all this other crazy stuff. Uh, but all of that costs money. Um, so I think that's one of the, the difficult things uh, that, that's happening in the industry is it's very expensive. And there's this push, of course, for graphical fidelity, right? There's this push to be... Um, you know, as true to life as possible. You want to feel as immersed as possible. It's only going to get worse with VR uh, entering the scene. Um, that's all really expensive to produce, right? That kind of realism, that level of immersion. Um, you know, the number of craftspeople that you have to hire to make sure that that happens. And every, every so often we, you know, the industry goes off on its little rant about, we're going to procedurally generate everything and it's all going to be handled by a program and that's never going to happen. So. It's because it, it won't be good. Um, you know, at the end of the day, nothing really beats hand-touched content. Um, so you're always going to need a real artist of some caliber working on that content to make it the best possible presentation that it can be. Which is not to say you can't have fun in procedurally generated worlds. Um, you know, I, I play Minecraft. It's fun. So it's, uh, uh, you know, the, the worlds make absolutely no sense. But that's OK. It's part of the charm. Um, but yeah, when you want something that has some feeling of realism, uh, procedural generation won't get it done. But so that, that's one of the big things. Um, we're also, the, the, this is the big one that's just happening right now, net neutrality. Hmm. Um, net neutrality is going to be monstrous uh, for the games industry. It is, it, you know, I think a lot of people have no idea how deeply they're going to be affected if net neutrality is rescinded. Um, you know, like, imagine so many games nowadays. People don't buy physical product games anymore. They buy the download, right? It's like they'll go into their PlayStation or their Xbox or their PC. They'll go on Steam, and they'll say, oh, this, this game looks cool. I'm just going to buy it, and I'll download it. Well, some of those games might be 50 gigabytes to download. Now, imagine if your internet connection is being throttled, 
and how much longer it will take to get those games to your computer. So we're actually going to wind up making it harder for people to actually download and enjoy games uh, without net neutrality. Or the, the, you know, the solution, of course, will be that companies are going to wind up paying a lot more money to ensure that they get the most favorable broadband speed. That cost has to get passed on somewhere, right? Well, that's a cheery thought. <laughs> I'm a ray of sunshine. No, I'm, I'm constantly in a state of panic about regulation these days. Right. So uh, I hear you. Um, just to pivot to a hopefully more positive note yes. <laughs> um, before I open it up for questions. Um, for students now, what skills would you recommend that they gain while they're in, skill, uh, while they're in school? Um, what should they be doing to prepare if they're interested in working in the gaming industry? The best thing you can be doing right now is honing your critical thinking ability. And that's, that's one of the things that, that's one of the best benefits that I got from coming here, um, you know, is, is developing critical thinking abilities, learning how to take apart things that I liked and figuring out why they worked and figuring out how to make them better. Um, and because that's a lot of what you're going to do when you get into the games industry. You're going to be looking at other games going, that game's awesome. How do they make that? And then you have to take it apart to figure out how they made it. And then your job is going to be, let's do it better than they did. Let's make it a better game. That's how World of Warcraft got to be as big as it did, right? They looked at EverQuest and went, what if we did EverQuest but better? And they did. And now they're giant enormous. So um, yeah, so I think, I think that's great. The other thing that I would say, um, you have the benefit of living in a very different time than when I was in school. Like, remember the Bell and Howell cameras I told you about? <laughs> we didn't have digital back then. Um, there's no excuse, right? We live, in, we live in a time of no excuses, right? If you want to do something, go out and do it. Don't wait for anybody to give you permission. You want to make a game? Go make a game. The tools are out there, right? You have that ability. Um, even, if you're just, even if you're just a writer, you're just like, I want to tell story-driven games. Go look at Choice Script. Go look at Twine. Uh, go look at, oh, gosh. It just came out on Steam. What's it called? It's a, it is a thing that is specifically for making dating simulators. Uh, it's, a, it's a program that's a suite of tools. It's just like, this will help you make dating simulators. You get together with a friend who's an artist, or if you yourself are an artist, you can make a dating simulator, and you can release it on Steam, right? Um, you know, Steven Soderbergh is making games, or making games, he's making, well, he's producing games for, that you can sort of watch on a phone, and, and you know, he's making movies on his phone. So. Uh, you know, that's, uh, we can do it, you know? It's like, if that's what you want to do, start now, don't wait. That's actually a great way to pivot to the audience to ask questions, and so we have Annie coming down to be the, the lady with the mic. So, like, in regards to transmedia storytelling, uh, you working with Star Wars, like, an already well-established, like, universe, I know you touched on it a bit, but um, I had a question about um, the flow of like movies to video games seem to be very successful and trying to do it the opposite way has not always met the same level of success, like Assassin's Creed or just... So from a storytelling standpoint, how do you see, like what is this, how, what, how, what does that look like? What, what does the success of, the, of that backflow look like? Mm -hmm. Or is it possible? So I think that, uh, I assume everybody heard the question. Um, I think that the, uh, the key problem with adapting video games into other media is that video games are kind of their own thing. And it's, it's very difficult to replicate the, the player agency 
the ability to control what's happening on the screen. And the truth of the matter is, most video game stories are completely nonsensical if you get right down to it. There are very few of them that hold together. Um, you know, they are, or they are crushed under the weight of so many releases. And I think this is what probably hurt Assassin's Creed. Like Assassin's Creed has some great ideas in it. And it's, very, it's a very cool IP. But they had so much material to work with and so much background lore. And I think the difficulty becomes, what do you pick, right? Which version of the game do you want to go with? Um, and then conversely, I think when you have games that have spectacular stories that are incredibly well told, uh, like any of the Uncharted games or The Last of Us or, or you know, th those types of games, there's no need to adapt them, right, into, into a movie. Like, really, you just be adapting them for people that don't play games, right? So, because you're actually going to have a better experience playing the game version more than likely than you would just sitting back and having the passive experience of watching a... Uh, a movie, and uh, but I think that I think that to answer your question, I think that the key the key issue is knowing exactly what to take from the IP and what to leave behind, um, and and it's the same thing that people run into when they're adapting comic books or, or or novels or things like that. It's knowing what to leave out is the difficult thing, and it's just much harder to do with games because everybody gets excited about different things in games, and they want to keep them. You know, they they want to they want to transfer that experience. Uh, out of curiosity, uh, BioWare has a big thing with like story driven by player choice, but also those player choices going over multiple games. Mm -hmm. I'm kind of curious, how do you handle that kind of scope and like what goes into saying, all right, this thing that I did in this side quest in the first game has this payoff in the third game or something like that? Right, right. So I mean, that's and that's half the fun of the job in a lot of cases is like doing those deep cuts of like. We're gonna make this one quest that's for like the 13 people that decided to save so and so instead of kill him, you know, sort of thing. And it's it's definitely one of those elements where we're constantly balancing business considerations with creative ones, because as fans and as storytellers, we always want to be able to give the player more <laughs> options of, you know, like if you made this choice, we want it to pay off here. We want it to we want you to feel like you did, you know, that what you did mattered. Um, but I think that uh, you know the the, the problem, of course, is that maybe only a small percentage of players will see that content. So we're always having to evaluate that. And in terms of like long-term choices, I mean, that's been one of the realities of Star Wars The Old Republic. We've continued to release story expansions for the game. We have to keep in mind everything that's come before and all the choices. And I can't tell you the number of times where we've had brainstorm meetings like, what if we brought back so-and-so? And somebody goes, yeah, well, you could kill him in that one quest. And we're like, no! <laughs> right? Because now you can't use that, that character because they might be dead in somebody else's game. And we can't create a completely custom game experience for all the people that, that uh, kept that character alive. So, um, so that, I think that's the big thing, right, is the, is the, the business consideration. How, how many resources are we willing to throw at something that a, a fraction of our player base is going to see? It's always safer to create content that you know everyone can enjoy, uh, you know, because it's, it's, uh, that's the most cost-effective thing that you can do. But it's more fun to do the other stuff. <laughs> so a difficulty in writing anything, I guess, like even in just short films, is like deciding where to start. And so I'm curious for a game like um, Star Wars or even like the Madden campaign, like how you decide where to start, if it's with a character or a single storyline, and then how you branch off from there. I think, uh, you know, I, I can tell you my own personal approach to it when I'm, when I'm doing storytelling is that I typically start 
you know, with a character who has a problem. And in games, the character with the problem is usually the player, right? Uh, there are other NPCs in there. They're adding problems to that, but the, the player has something that they need to, uh, to accomplish, and everything else is a, uh, um, uh, you know, sort of a, a complication to that. Um, but it's, it's more complicated than that, ultimately. I think that there are a lot of different approaches that are all equally valid. Um, you know, for Star Wars Old Republic, we knew in advance, we had certain design considerations. We were like, well, we want two factions, right? So that automatically implies some players can play the bad guys. Well, now we have to figure out who the bad guys are and how they could possibly be, you know, something that you could enjoy playing, right? Beyond just pure, like, I'm the psychopath with the lightsaber, you know, sort of thing. So, you know, it's, it's we, you know, we have to do, you know, something, something else that, that allows players to, uh, to attach to that. Um, so that's, that's an example of something where we had a design consideration that mandated a particular style of storytelling. And that had a, um, you know, kind of a, that, that reverberated, right, throughout the rest of the content that we were creating. Because we realize now we were creating eight parallel stories, right, for our eight classes on two different sides that were running side by side. There are still, by the way, people arguing about the chronology of the class stories in relation to each other. It's like, well, clearly this planet happens before this one over here, you know, sort of thing. And, and they're right. Um, so it's all, <laughs> they figured it out. They, you know, in some cases, they figured it out better than we have. Um, so, you know, because it's incredible. Like, it's so complex when you're doing that, uh, that kind of thing and balancing those different, uh, those different elements. But ultimately, you start where it makes the most sense. It's either a character with a problem or it's the problem itself or it's the, the mandate of your design. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's figuring out, okay, well, we need, a, we need a class story for a Jedi Knight. What's that gonna look like? We need a class story for a smuggler that's totally different from the Jedi Knight. How will that work? Uh, one of the most fun things that we did was when we had those group quests was coming up with alternate lines of dialogue that were class specific. So that when everybody's choosing their thing that they wanna say, smugglers might get a custom line you know, compared to the Jedi Knight or the Trooper or, or whoever. Um, so yeah, so that's, uh, um, my, my feeling about it is, whatever you're doing, just start writing, right? Figure out where the beginning is later. I just wanted to ask, um, so there are different types of players that are generally associated with MMOs, so, so like killers, socializers, explorers. I wanted to ask, um, how much do those different types of players figure into how you write and how do you deal with those different types of players? Oh, sure, yeah. So you're talking about the, uh, the Bartle um, classifications of, of gamers, right? So you've got killers, the ones that just want to run around and destroy everything in their path. You've got explorers that are, that, you know, it's like they always want to find like the cool thing that's hidden, tucked away. Um, socializers, socializers is a little bit of a crossover because that involves socializing with other players but also socializing with non-player characters that we've written content for in the game. Um, our, our mandate, because one of the realities is Bioware writers are not just storytellers. We are game designers. We also have to come up with ideas for what the gameplay is going to be and how to make it fun for all of those types. And so when we're designing a quest or designing a story, we will look at it from the perspective of, and then the explorer players are going to get to delve through this dungeon and explore all these little nooks and crannies and stuff. And the killers will be happy because we'll stock it with lots of things for them to beat up. Um, you know, sort of thing. And then the socializing will get worked in with, uh, you know, whatever we're doing, uh, you know, in terms of conversations, you know, meeting, you know, the ability to team up with other players. 
Um, you know, the ability to, to tell your friends, hey, my character class is doing this really awesome thing. Come, come into my instance with me and fight with me, you know, sort of thing. We're going we're gonna to have a blast. Um, so, yeah, so thinking about all those different things. We don't ever want to leave any particular category of player uh, out of it. And so, that, yeah, that's, that's a great question, and it's really important to us is to, to honor and, you know, provide for all different types of players uh, to not create a game that exclusively appeals to just one type. Regrettably, I've never played the Star Wars Old Republic. Well, it's still available, so you can go. <laughs> um, I have played World of Warcraft, and so I uh, understand that chats and socializing are an important component of these games. So what I was wondering is, um, in the Old Republic, have there ever been instances of, like, per se, harassment or cyberbullying oh, sure. uh, inside? And what are the procedures to go about handling those situations? Right. So yeah, I mean, obviously, in any online game that has a dedicated chat window, yeah, you're going to have that. Um, you're going to have players that just like to grief other players and just follow them around and kill them repeatedly. Uh, because that's fun for them, um, you know, sort of thing. So, um, you know, and ultimately, uh, we do maintain uh, people whose responsibility it is to answer those, those customer complaints. When customers come to us and say, hey, player XYZ is harassing me in this very specific way, then we have people that will monitor that account and we will watch what they're doing. Um, and if, when we see them doing things that specifically violate, by the way, all of these games have a terms of use, right? They've got, they all have a EULA. And, um, you know, it's, it's uh, you know, once you've accepted that, once you're playing the game, um, you're beholden to it and you're beholden to behave correctly um, and, and abide by those, uh, those standards. And so, yeah, I mean, you know, we will have players, you know, pip, griefers will get banned, right? They'll have their accounts suspended and they won't be able to access the game. Um, and so that's, and that is something that we take very seriously because the whole point is for people to have fun. Right, and if your fun is just harming other people's fun, that's not great. Um, we don't we don't actually want that. One more question. <laughs> I know they always make a good. Like, <laughs> but I just I just like that he was like I'm the last. Um, I was just curious: is there a technical side of the job that you do of, of a writer? Because I love video games, and I. I really love writing, but I'm not a super tech-savvy person. Sure. Um, you know, there are some technical aspects to it. You will have to learn proprietary tool sets. Um, you know, right now I'm working in the Frostbite engine, which is EA's proprietary tool set. Uh, we have uh, a conversation editing tool uh, that gives us all the things that we need. It's really complex. Um, you know, one of my coworkers is constantly like, doing the flaily thing at his desk. He's like, well, I want to do the thing, you know, sort of thing. And I have to kind of come over and go, just click that one box. Um, so that's, that is part of the job. And I think you can't, you don't want to be afraid of technology. Um, but that said, um, it's nowhere near as complex as learning to code, right? It's nowhere, I mean, it's, it's uh, you know, at, at worst, uh, when we were working on Star Wars Old Republic, we, we added in, you know, Boolean, you know, uh, variable checks, right? It's like, don't only display this line if the player killed this character in this other plot, you know, sort of thing. Or, you know, otherwise display this one kind of thing. It's very, very straightforward. Now, you can get a lot more complex with it, and I would actually encourage you to do so. I think it's worthwhile um, to learn coding and to, to, you know, actually just take a basic coding class and learn uh, the ins and outs of it and, and get familiar with some of the concepts. If for no other reason, then it will give you tremendous empathy 
when, like me, you'll be like, what if? And everybody in the room goes, that will cost $10 million. I'm like, yeah, but, you know, sort of thing. And, um, you know, that, that's the, the most famous story is when uh, I was writing one of those design documents that I told you about earlier. Uh, and I just casually typed the words, hut pleasure barge. Uh, in there, and the um, the art director got a hold of that. He's like, "What are you talking about? Don't I have a hot pleasure barge?" I'm like, "Well, how expensive is it to make one? It's a hundred thousand dollars." I said, "Well, great. We'll just keep using it throughout the game. We'll put it all over the place, you know." Sort of thing. <laughs> and that was that was how I got that in the game. Um, so yeah, that's that's uh, that's one of the keys there. Yeah. Well, let me ask one final question, which is, what are you watching or playing right now? <laughs> well, uh, let's see. I've, I've surrendered my life to uh, Princess Zelda. Uh, I have my Nintendo Switch, and I'm, I'm playing uh, Breath of the Wild, which I think is a spectacular game. Uh, it's one of the best I've ever played. Uh, my daughter drags me into uh, Just Dance marathons periodically. Um, you know, obviously, I try to play Bi uh, all of Bioware's games, keep up with what's going on there. Um, and... Uh, Oh, I had to abandon Persona 5 to play Legend of Zelda. That hurt. I really <laughs> like Persona 5. Um, that's a good one. Uh, in terms of uh, mobile games, I kind of go in and out on those. Uh, a lot of the time, I'm not super fond of them. <laughs> I've, I did, I've, I've been, you know, in addition to uh, Bury Me, My Love, which is my very serious game that I'm playing right now, before that, I played um, My Horse Prince. Has anybody played My Horse Prince? Go download it. <laughs> Get back to me. It's... Uh, it's a dating simulator. Um, you, you are a Japanese girl dating a, dating a horse with a human head. It's pretty spectacular. Um, yeah, that was quite something. Uh, so there, there was that. Um, in terms of things I'm watching, you know, I try to get to the movies as often as possible. Um, the, uh, uh, you know, on television right now, I'm, I'm weak. I love the X-Men, so I'm watching The Gifted, and I'm going to start Runaways on uh, um, uh, Hulu. Uh, so I, I watch things like that. But I, I find that I don't actually have as much time to watch things as I, as I used to, so I have to be extremely picky about it. I watch a lot of things while I'm on my rowing machine, as it turns out. So, <laughs> so it's a good place. So I, I tend to evaluate shows in terms of, is this workout worthy, you know, sort of thing? Is it like, going to distract me from the agony for 45 minutes to an hour? So, yeah. Well, on that note, um, thank you so much. This is great. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Media Industry Conversations. For more information about upcoming speakers or to hear our past guests, visit rtf.utexas.edu slash mic. If you have a moment, please rate and review the podcast on iTunes. This series was made possible by the work of Dr. Elisa Perrin and Cindy McCreary, with the assistance of Brett Siegel, Britta Hansen, and Annie Major. And the program was produced and edited by me, Kyle Rather. This has been a production of the Department of Radio, Television, and Film and the Moody College of Communication at the University of Texas at Austin. We hope you join us next time for another Media Industry Conversation. There is a land, a western land, mighty wonderful to see. It is a land I understand. And it's there I know